felt like I had to do a dead sprint up here almost to get in a timely manner. Well, I look around this morning and I see that we have some of our regulars who uh, aren't here. I know that we have some who are experiencing illnesses. I know we've got some others who are traveling, but it's also good to see some visitors here with us this morning. And I hope the time we spend here together will be beneficial. We'll all be built up for the time we spend here together today. The Roman Emperor Julian reigned in the middle of the fourth century, and he's better known to us today as Julian the Apostate. That's because while he was raised as a Christian, he later studied philosophy in Athens, and he turned his back on Christianity. He viewed it as one of his goals of his reign, to turn back the tide that Christians had gained in Roman life and to reinstitute traditional Roman worship. You see, in his day, paganism was in a state of severe decline. Temples weren't visited, sacrifices weren't offered. And so Julian called together a number of his pagan priests and he charged them, quote, preach every week as the Christians do. Now, he obviously didn't intend it this way, but if you think about it, that's a very real compliment to the power of Christian preaching. Preach every week as the Christians do, he said. We've been looking together for some weeks now at some of the activities we participate in in our assemblies with a view toward understanding not only what we do here, but but why we do it, and perhaps even how we might get more out of what we do in our worship together. And so with that in mind, I want us to think for a few minutes together today about the topic of preaching. When we consider the activities in the assembly, I've seen this analogy used before, and I, th- I think it's helpful. Uh, we might relate them to a hand, the fingers on a hand. So let each one of the activities we participate in represent one of these, you know, singing, praying, eating the Lord's Supper, giving, the things that we've talked about. And then let preaching be represented by the thumb. Now, the thumb is part of the hand. The thumb is still technically a finger, but the thumb is also different. Well, in just that same way, preaching is a part of our worship, but it's in a different plane like that thumb is. When a congregation eats the Lord's Supper, or when we raise our voices in song, or when we give of our means, or when we offer up prayers to God, those are all things that the church is doing to God or for God. Preaching is God speaking to his people. So those others are offered to God from his people. This is God speaking to his people. Consider the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse, 15, verse 13, pardon me. The apostle says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. We are a people who are called by the Word of God. And just so that Word of God continues to call us together when we assemble as his people. Ideally, this is a period when the congregation listens reverently, responsibly, while God's word is expounded. 
Ideally, it's a time when God speaks to his people. What is preaching? That might be a good place to start, and we're going to give a couple of definitions today, but the first one comes from the great 19th century American preacher, Phillips Brooks. He defined it this way once. He said, preaching is the communion of truth by man to men. It has in it two essential elements, truth and personality. Neither of those can it spare and still be preaching. That's a good working definition. Preaching is the communication of God's truth by man to men. So it has two elements in it there. The first one is the man or the messenger, the preacher. When God created human beings in the beginning, he made us creatures of choice. And that's not because he values free will as something abstract. It's because he seeks a relationship with us. He wants us to choose him out of love. He wants us to voluntarily serve him. We're never forced to do God's will. And so when human beings sin and fractured that relationship, God made a plan to repair that. And he communicated that plan through messengers, through human beings. Now, God has given us his written word, his inspired word, and that's invaluable. But I think we all recognize that the written word can never have that same power as the spoken word. When someone who believes in the truth of this message presents it with life and with vitality, it takes on a new power, a new force that it didn't have before. And that's the idea of preaching. It has more influence than that written word alone can ever have. But as important as the preacher is, as the messenger is, he needs to remember that he's just a channel. You think about a water pipe, for instance. What makes for a good water pipe? Well, it gets water from one place to another without any sort of impurities, without any contamination, chemicals, or rust, or dirt, or debris. Well, in just that same way, a preacher is a good preacher if he communicates God's message without adulteration. You know, you don't go to the sink and get a nice cold glass of water and take a sip and put it down and say, ah. Those are great pipes. No, it's about the water. That's what's cool. That's what's refreshing. The message is what's essential. The focus isn't on how clever I can be or how funny I can be, not very, based on the response to that last joke, um, on what great clever illustrations I can come up with or how intelligent I am, anything like that. The focus must always be on the Word of God. And so that brings us to the second thing, the message. The important element in preaching is the message of God, and Scripture makes this clear over and over and over again. There's a number of passages that come to mind that are probably familiar to most of us. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That same apostle also wrote to the church in Corinth from a text that was read just a few moments ago. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach or through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. 
Paul says it even more directly in his second letter to the church in Corinth. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. The preacher is just the conduit through which the message comes. The power is with God. The message is the absolutely essential element in preaching. Now, preaching calls forth a human response. That makes it important. But it's the power of God that's at work there. And in fact, if we study Scripture, we see that God's activity among his people has always involved preaching. We might think of that in particular in the New Testament, but it's true under the Old Testament too. And there are several examples that come to mind here. Uh, One of the best is Joshua's farewell sermon in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua's an old man at this point. The Israelites had entered into the promised land and he was retiring essentially. They had taken control of the land, but there were still these pockets of resistance all around. These Canaanite tribes who were pagans and could still have an effect to influence them to idolatry. And so Joshua assembles them together, and in this long sermon, he recounts everything that God has done for them, the promises he made to their fathers, and then how he brought them up out of the land of Egypt, how he gave them the land. And then he reaches his climax, one that's familiar to many of us, in verse number 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Another great example comes to us from the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2. Nehemiah was the governor of the province of Judea, Persian province, after the exile. And he comes back and he sees the state of Jerusalem. The walls are in complete disrepair. He makes a, a survey of it. And after that survey, he gathers all the people up and he preaches to them. And he says in Nehemiah 2.17, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. The result of that sermon was that the people were challenged and they all worked together and they rebuilt those walls. Probably the most famous example of preaching in the Old Testament comes to us from the book of Jonah. If you remember the story of Jonah, he was ordered to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, enemies of Israel, and to warn them that unless they repented, God was going to destroy the city. Now, Jonah didn't want to do that because he didn't like the Assyrians. He tried to run away as far as possible. But you remember the story. Ultimately, he gets back there. And he proclaims this message, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown or destroyed. Well, the response to that preaching was incredible. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God was moved by their penitence. He relented. The city was saved because of preaching, much to Jonah's chagrin, actually. But, of course, it is in the New Testament where we find the really prominent place given to preaching. We read about the forerunner 
of Christ, John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was pointing the way forward to Jesus. And of course, the greatest of all preaching that we've ever found that was done by Jesus. He went preaching that same message, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we have many of his teachings and his preachings recorded at length from the parables to the Sermon on the Mount to the Sermon on the Plain. The apostles also did their fair share of preaching. Read through the book of Acts, see all the sermons that are recorded there. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon to that crowd that had been assembled in response to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The result of his sermon was that about 3,000 people were baptized and added to the church. A little bit later, Peter preached in Acts chapter 10 to the household of a Gentile named Cornelius, and uh, the call of the gospel started to cross those boundaries beyond Jews to all nations. You could read a number of sermons that Paul preached in many different places, in synagogues, I I think particularly of his sermon in Acts chapter 17 to those Athenian philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics on Mars Hill in Athens. Every one of these examples, and there are more we could list, demonstrate the importance of preaching in God's plan, whether it's revealing his will in the Old Testament or whether it's calling people to faith in Jesus in the New Testament. And that sort of evangelistic activity is a duty that all of us have actually, whether we consider ourselves preachers or not. But in keeping with this series of lessons, I do want us to think for a few minutes about the place of preaching in the assembly of the church in particular. Scripture reveals to us the will of God and the word of God. The church is a people who are called by the word of God. I mean, in a sense, we come into existence. We're created by that word of God. And we assemble here on the first day of the week because that word of God continues to call us together. And so it's only fitting that when we gather together, we would read and we would study and we would proclaim that word of God. In Jesus' day, The synagogue service that Jews participated in included readings from Scripture and a lesson that expounded them. Uh, You can see that in Luke chapter 4, for instance. You remember that Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue there on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and they ask him to read. And he selects the scroll of Isaiah and he reads a passage from chapter 61 and he expounds it. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is, the prophet was talking about me. Well, that same reading and exposition of the scriptures continued in early Christian assemblies with one key difference, and that is that now all of scripture was read in terms of Christ, that it was pointing to him. It was read with that lens in mind. And so, for instance, the apostle Paul uh, reveals the content and the goal of preaching in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul writes, him we proclaim, talking about Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, preaching isn't 
exclusively or even primarily an evangelistic activity. It's not just trying to reach out to people outside the church and convert them. Preaching is directed to Christians to help us grow, to help us mature, to help us reach our full potential in Christ. So, for instance, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is a chapter where Paul goes into more detail about what took place in the early worship assemblies than anywhere else. And he refers, if we were to read it, to the activities there of of prophesying, of teaching, of speaking in tongues, of interpreting those tongues. Now, some of those gifts may have passed away, but the thing they all have in common is an emphasis on verbal instruction. That's what they have in common with preaching. You look at 1 Corinthians 14, just for instance, verse number 3, he says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. A little bit later in that same chapter, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You see, the point is to bring the word of God to hearers to build them up, to strengthen, to encourage, to help them to grow. Each one of these things, just like preaching, was a vehicle to bring that word of God to others. It's imperative that we understand that. Preaching reminds us of God's presence in the assembly. This is God speaking to us when the word is preached. That's what all of these passages that we've looked at this morning indicate. When scriptures proclaim, that's God speaking to his people. And I say it's imperative that we understand that because I worry sometimes that maybe we've watered down that concept of what a sermon is, of what preaching is. It's impossible to paint with too broad a brush here. I don't want to make just sweeping statements because... uh, All congregations are autonomous, and you have differences from one part of the country to another, from urban to rural, etc. But with the exception of our song service, maybe, probably no aspect of the worship of the church has undergone more changes in the last half century or so than the sermon. You think about, say, 75 years ago. Most of the morning worship period was devoted to the sermon. The style was very much influenced by debate. It was very formal. You had a thesis, a proposition, and then I would have points supporting that. My first point, my second point, my third point, etc. The emphasis in all of this was on logic. It was on reason. That's the primary mode of persuasion. I don't try to appeal to emotions or anything like that. It's trying to appeal to the mind. And the main focus in all of this, even when it's a gathering like this morning where nearly everyone is already a Christian, was on conversion, 
We're trying to be evangelistic here, even though most of the people here are already Christians. That's obviously shifted a lot. And we couldn't possibly go into the details of all of the ways that it shifted, but you don't see very many sermons that are organized that way anymore. And while it may be appropriate at times, I think for the most part, that's a good thing. The style typically is not nearly so formal. It's more conversational. Uh, My style even is maybe more formal than some, but I'd consider it to be conversational. Uh, And if you think otherwise, have a conversation with me. You'd probably find it exhausting. But not all changes are good. That is, change for its own sake is not necessarily a positive. And I think some of the end result, whether intentionally or unintentionally, of some of these changes is diminishing the importance of the sermon. And consider just some of the changes in the design of church buildings to get an idea of what I mean. In the 19th century, the pulpit was prominent. It was high and lifted up. You go in churches of Christ or you go in uh, pretty much any denominational church building built more than 100 years ago and you'll see that the pulpit is several feet off the ground, much higher than this one even. Part of that was due to acoustics in days before microphones so that people could hear better. But part of it was also symbolic to emphasize the significance of the preaching. And the idea was to bring the preacher closer to God because he's proclaiming him, his spokesman. Now, you go into most church buildings and a lot of newer ones, well, they don't have a podium like this, a pulpit at all. They'll have a little glass thing there. And instead of standing beside it, the preacher, he'll walk around, you know, and he'll talk in different ways. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But a lot of these modern church buildings, they don't even have it raised up the stage as far off the ground as this. It'll be very low to the ground. So that uh, when I was at a preaching conference, Focal Point, last year. With the exception of one fellow, uh, Dan Winkler, who's the brother of a former minister here, so a little bit older gentleman, uh, very traditional in his preaching. He stood behind the pulpit. But everybody else would walk down here, and they'd walk to the front, and they'd stand here, and they'd talk just sort of like this. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I've seen my dad walk out from behind the pulpit to the sides to give points of emphasis to what he was saying. He tells me that my great-grandfather, his grandfather, was even more animated in his preaching. He would sometimes talk about, you know, like he was crying or something, and he'd run to the baptistry and, you know, put his hand up over his uh, face, things like that. Much more animated than I am. And the idea, I think, here is that everyone needs to be authentic in their presentation. I mentioned the fact that preaching combines truth and personality. Well, your personality has to come through in just the same way that the personalities of the different writers of Scripture comes through, even though they're all speaking the words of God. Uh, Kelly, from what I understand, he was a walker, and that makes sense because he's an energetic sort of guy. You can see that bubbling out of him at times, so he should do that. But it wouldn't be natural for me to do that. If I started walking around here all the time, you would know that that's not who I am. Some guys shouldn't stand behind the pulpit all the time because it wouldn't be normal for them. But if I started coming down to the front and pacing around or 
I don't know, uh, wearing a polo shirt and boat shoes or, or even worse, skinny jeans and uh, an ironic mustache and black wire frame glasses, all those things that are hip now, uh, you would know that I was just trying too hard. I wasn't being myself. In fact, when I was attending church in Austin at Southwest, there's a preaching school there, and you could always tell, and anyone who's been in a preaching school could probably attest to this, you could always tell the guys who were just imitating people who were their favorite preachers because it was totally not natural. It was very stilted. It was put upon. People don't want to see that. So I'm not saying that any of this in itself is bad, but I do worry that some of these changes have diminished subconsciously the significance of the sermon. Because now I see some people questioning the importance of the sermon in worship. Is this worship? Should we even have it? I know of some congregations that have gotten rid of one sermon or preacher, they'll just have a number of little talks and it's sort of the guy here standing and you know I'd just like to share my thoughts on this passage and it's not spoken with any sort of authority I know of others this past week I was compiling a database to send out invitations for our singing that's coming up in a few months to area congregations and I came across one that mentioned uh, in terms of their worship we're no longer a church with one voice preacher okay there's nothing wrong with that that's fine Instead, what we have in our services is different people who share things at different times, and it's sort of spontaneous, etc. I didn't send them an invite. Um, anyway, we, we see that sort of shift in things because I, I don't know what that even means. It's working from a completely different framework. So what I'm saying is while being conscious of communicating as best we can and, and changes in communication style, that's a good thing. But sometimes we get so concerned with style rather than substance that we forget the theological importance of preaching, of the sermon. James F. White is one of the leading contemporary scholars of worship, and he defines preaching this way. He says that the preacher speaks for God, from the scriptures, by the authority of the church, to the people. I want to unpack those four things briefly. The preacher speaks, first of all, for God. Now, that sounds pretty bold. We might even think that sounds arrogant. And in fact, part of me is uncomfortable with saying that because if there's one good thing about lowering the stage and walking around like that, it's that it convey, can convey humility, that I'm just one of you, I'm just like you, which I am. So when we say that the preacher speaks for God, well, that is too bold if we're claiming any sort of special insight on the part of the preacher. I don't have any greater access to God than you have. You shouldn't take something as authoritative just because I tell you that it's a particular way. But we have to remember, the sermon isn't just the product of human effort. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? We read it a few moments ago. It says that God saves through the foolishness of preaching. That's a promise of God that when his word is preached, he is speaking. Preaching is trust in that promise. 
Secondly, the preacher speaks from Scripture. If we understand that the sermon is God's work primarily, it's not my work, it's God's work, then we'll realize that it needs to be based in God's book. If the sermon is based in the movies or the newspaper or religious fiction, even good religious fiction, it might be more entertaining than this. But we should doubt the idea that this is God's work because he's not the source of what we're doing here. Now, that doesn't mean that we should quote as many verses as we can in the old style of verse, 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 rapid fire, proof texting things without regard for context so that people can't even keep up with what's being said. It does mean that the sermon should be saturated with Scripture to the point that it should reveal God to those who are listening. Third, the preacher speaks by the authority of the church. That means that the church has recognized that this is a person who's been gifted by God in some way to be able to do this. Now, that doesn't mean that the church needs to be wowed or impressed by great oratorical skill or by an impressive degree of intelligence or anything like that. It does mean that the church needs someone who's dedicated themselves to this to help them see God through these ancient words. Fourth and finally, White says, the preacher speaks to the people. Remember that the sermon occurs in the context of the worship assembly, and we have to keep that context in mind. There might be times when an evangelistic sermon, that is a sermon designed to convert people, when that's appropriate. But more often than not, that's not going to be the case because our primary audience on Sunday morning are people who are Christians. And so it needs to build them up. It needs to instruct. It needs to edify. The content of the sermon should always keep in mind the context of God's worship. It shouldn't be something that fits in as well or better in a comedy club or at a political rally, or at a university lecture hall. There's the one I have to guard against. That doesn't mean it can't be funny. That doesn't mean that you can't engage with controversial issues. That doesn't mean it can't be deep and challenging and cause people to think, but it does mean that it should be focused on the life of the church. Christians are shaped by Christ They're shaped by Scripture, so the sermon should reveal Christ. It should be rooted in Scripture, and it should show the obligations that we have in response to that. And when we think of it that way, this is a very important part of the worship experience. Some people ask, is preaching worship? Well, a sermon that's preached in faith, based on Scripture, praising God's deeds, and then demonstrating the obligations that we have as a consequence of that, That, indeed, is worship. So what we see in the end is that we all have a responsibility in preaching, even if it's in that slightly different plane like the fingers and the thumb. There's a responsibility to the preacher to know God's word, to keep himself as best as he can a fit channel for its proclamation, to be studious, to be someone who thinks, to be someone who is knowledgeable about the message that he's bringing, to try to convey that in the best manner that he can. 
But there's also a responsibility to the listener to actively hear, to be engaged in what's being said, to see what God has to say about your life, and then to be obedient, to be submissive to his commands. And it's here that our message this morning closes with a call to those who have not yet obeyed, who are not submissive to his will to come. God loves you. Jesus Christ died for you so that you wouldn't be separated from God eternally by your sins, but that you could have a home with him in heaven. And if you need to obey his commands, I'm going to invite you this morning to put your trust in Jesus, to turn to God in repentance, to be buried in the waters of baptism, have your sins washed away, begin to live that life, walking in the light, obedience to his word. If you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. The call is for you, if you've strayed away, to come home, to return to your first love. We must preach. And there's power in preaching, power in the gospel. But there's no profit in it unless people hear it and they implement it. If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, come now while we stand and while we sing. Are you washed in?